0: Welcome to Noble Warrior. This is a place where entrepreneurs talk about what it takes to build the purpose-driven organizations and purpose-driven life. We're going to dive into mindset, mental models, and actionable tactics such that you can build your purpose-driven company. My name is CK Lin, biomedical engineering, UCLA, PhD turned startup executive turned executive coach, focused specifically on mindset and culture. My next guest, he's one of the world's foremost thought leaders on empathic listening. He's a UCLA assistant clinical professor of psychiatry, FBI hostage negotiator, advisor to the OJ Simpson trial, the owner of the Theory Y Executive Coaching. He's a suicide specialist without losing any of his patients in 25 years. He's also the author of seven books, especially Just Listen, discover the secrets to getting through absolutely anyone, and he's writing two more, Why Cope When You Can Heal, How Healthcare Heroes of COVID-19 Can Recover from CTSD and Trauma to Triumph, a roadmap for leading through disruption and thriving on the other side. Please welcome Dr. Mark Goulston. Who is this guy you got on CK? Gee, that's a lot to live up to. <laughs> Well, that is you, my friend. Thank you so much for being here.
1: There's so many
0: things that I want to ask you, but you wanted to talk about a little bit about what we just did before we hit start.
2: Yes. uh, CK led me through a, a, what was it called? Four count grounding exercise? Box breathing. Box breathing. I like to go along with things. And so here was the experience I had and why I should do it every day. And you should too. As I went through the box breathing, what I felt is I felt the three parts of my brain safely disengaging from each other. And I closed my eyes and with the breathing, I could feel the thinking human part of my brain loosen from the feeling emotional part of my brain, loosen from the survival part of my brain. So really what it was, imagine a really tense Rubik's cube that's all twisted together and you're making it through life, but it's twisted together. And with that breathing, what happened is it allowed those three parts of my brain, the thinking, the feeling, and the acting parts of my brain to organically just release from each other. And by the end of it, they reconfigured So it was a way of safely letting go of control because one of the challenges for many entrepreneurs is they have trouble letting go of control. And unless you let go of control, you can't create something. I had mentioned to CK share a story. I was recently speaking to a group of entrepreneurs and it's about 15 in the room, we did it by zoom and there was one woman and i was there to speak about communication cuz my book on listening did pretty well around the world it's, it's it became the top book on listening in the world i spoke with a nobel prize winner in moscow a guy named daniel kahneman he wrote a book called thinking fast and slow you no know, that's what they teed me up to be talk about communication to entrepreneurs but i listened into the meeting before the break before i was about to speak And as I listened in, I thought, they don't care about communication. They don't care about listening. Like on a good day, I can be engaging. I've got some interesting stories, hostage negotiation, suicide, so I can grab people's attention. But I thought, what they're really struck by was Jennifer. And Jennifer was this amazing young entrepreneur. And I could tell they all looked up to her and I looked up to her. And so before the break, I said, okay, we're going on break. Then it's me afterwards. Here's the choice. We can talk about communication after the break and I'll tell you how to become a better listener. But most of you are entrepreneurs. You don't really like to listen. You assign your you assign your people issues to someone else because God love them. People are messy. Mm -hmm. They're just not that clear. Mm -hmm. And so you like vision and strategy. The problem is a bottleneck with execution because you got to do it through people until you replace them all. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'll give you a choice. We can talk about communication. I'll give you some tips, or I can tell you how to think like Jennifer, Elon Musk, and Steve Jobs. So let's go on break. And when we come back, tell me what you want. So you can guess what they wanted.
0: With that lead up, of course.
2: When the break was over they said we want to think like jennifer and meanwhile jennifer is looking at me like who is this crazy guy and i'll say here's the difference between jennifer and the rest of you she sees the unknown as an adventure to be lived Mm. the rest of you see the unknown as a danger to be avoided And the reason she sees the unknown as an adventure to be lived is because that's all she's been all her life. And she believes that if she just goes out there, things, opportunities, dots to connect will reveal themselves to her because they always have. I said, isn't that true, Jennifer? And she looked at me and she said, how did you know these things? I said, is it true? She said, it's absolutely true. And then she texted me and she said, You're gonna coach me. Mm. So I'm coaching Jennifer. And in the couple months we've been working together. <sighs> so she has a home care company, one of the one of the top home care companies. So in the couple of months we've been working together, she bought a nursing school. Mm. She started a company called IV at your door, because when you go into some of these home care facilities they're not allowed to have ivs on their patients and with all of this covid it's a real struggle to take a an elderly patient take them to the emergency room so she's created a whole business called iv at your door where she takes vans and she brings them ivs and mm. uh, but i wanted to share that with you because there's a lot to be learned and that's how by the way elon musk and steve jobs look at the world mm. They have a quality that I learned from a mentor of mine. All of you are too young to know the name Warren Bennis. If you look him up, he's one of the top five people who ever lived. Uh, and he, and he's a thought leader in leadership. And he died a bunch of years ago. Yeah. And, uh, and he had this great quote that he often told me that came from a playwright named Saul Bellow. And the quote was, be a first class noticer. Be a first class noticer, because noticing is different than looking, watching, or seeing. When you look, watch, or see, you're an observer. But when you notice, you just tune into it. Like I'm noticing that I'm looking into this camera lens. I'm not quite seeing CK, but but I'm looking into the lens to see all of you. And so here, so something that I, when I work with companies about how do you Identify those people is I give them an exercise. But I'm going to grab a little water here. Excuse me. Sure,
0: please. I'll
2: give you a tangent because I I think in tangents, but people say that I usually bring them around. So if I don't, you'll say, Mark, come back to the planet we're on. I was I have a a podcast called My Wake Up Call, and I talk to people about their purpose, their calling in life and what matters most to them and how they came to develop that. What were the wake-up calls? So one of my favorite interviews is with Tim Brown. Tim Brown is the chair of IDEA. He was formerly the CEO of, for 20 years. And I'm talking to him, and he's telling me about his background, and he's always been an engineer and likes doing things. And I said, Tim, you're a first-class noticer. He said, what? You're a first-class noticer. In fact, what you do at IDEO is you attract people from all different fields, sociology, psychology, engineering, and you basically tell them at IDEO University, go out and notice stuff. You know, notice what's frustrating people. Maybe go up to them, find out what's frustrating them. Notice what they're excited about. Go up to them and ask them, what are you so excited about? But that's how IDO trains its people. Go out there, and obviously you're noticing something as a psychologist that would be different than noticing it as an engineer. Uh, but a good thing to do with your teams and yourself is maybe in your meetings, suggest to people that in your weekly meeting, uh, your Zoom call, and by the way, this is going to wake up some of the Zoom fatigue and, you, and your roll call is to say, what is something that you noticed for the first time
1: mm.
2: since the last meeting?
0: Mm. I love that. I want to hone in on a point that, that you're pointing to here. I'm an INTJ. So for me, for the longest time of my life was really about just the mind. Everything else, the body, the emotions, even spirituality, things like that. These are just secondary, tertiary. They don't even exist. And over time I had to learn, oh, there's actually something to this thing called emotionality. There's, there are these things called the body. There are these things called spirituality That's beyond just what's tangible, what's material. So if you don't mind speaking to a younger CK who don't quite care about what you are pointing to, the noticing, be a noticer. Why care about heightened uh, awareness to things beyond just you know the obvious? Why care about emotionality, communication? Why care about these things?
2: I will tell you, the reason to care about it is it will stretch your brain and you will actually have more influence in the world. So I've been fortunate in that I'm seen as this thought leader. my life, my wife would laugh at that. but but I have connections with amazing CEOs at amazing companies. and then I, I ask them, I said, why, why do you have conversations with me?" And they say, because every conversation we have, you bring up something that's counterintuitive. So in other words, if you can develop these skills, which you do by thinking outside the box, you will be influential. People will want more of you. They won't treat you like a function. They won't treat you like a plug and play. And what these people have said is you come up with something that's counterintuitive, meaning, I never would have thought of it. I never would have thought of that. And you and it's intuitively correct which means that could work. I never would have thought of that, and that could work. And then the third thing is, I think I can do that. So I think one of the ways I've gained influence is by just noticing things in all directions. And, and the, what I've noticed has started to come together. And what happens is when you're with other people and they leave a conversation with you, thinking to themselves, boy, I never would have thought of that. That could work. I think I can do it. In fact, I'll share a story. You mentioned uh, I was involved in the O.J. Simpson trial with the prosecution, and this is how I got involved. I don't usually talk about it because I was on the side that lost, but how I got involved is I knew the DA at the time who was Gil Garcetti. Gil Garcetti was the district attorney. His son is Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles. And I knew him and I said, I don't know that much about trials or juries. But if I was looking for a juror, and it's going to be downtown Los Angeles, which is going to be largely African American, I would ask them, have you ever changed your mind about the way you felt about someone? Because if they didn't change their mind about maybe an abusive dad, they're not going to change their mind about O.J. Simpson. And so you want people who are capable of changing their mind about something. And then I would ask them, what made you change your mind? Was it facts? Was it emotion? Mm-hmm. I said, if it's emotion, you better have a compelling emotional case. Mm-hmm. If it was facts. Have a convincing case. hmm and he came back to me after speaking with Marsha Clark, who's, you know, the DA. And he said, we never would have thought of what you just said, ever. As soon as you said it, it was obvious.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: We need to find people who are capable of changing their mind. We need to find people who change their mind based on whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's when he said, you want to join us? Can you be an observer? So during the trial, I was... Uh, they're probably 30 days and I would come in and I'd give them feedback. I'd fax them various things that they wouldn't have thought of. I'll, I'll give you one thing that they used. Now, many of you are young. Don't even remember the trial unless you saw the recent movies, but I remember at the end, there's a lot of the stuff I gave them. They didn't use, but at the end I thought, okay, the jury's going into deliberation. So, you know, They're leaving the court. So how do you influence the way a jury thinks when they're no longer in front of you? So one of the things I suggested, which they used, and Marsha Clark used it in her closing argument, I said, make sure you play the tape of Nicole Brown Simpson talking to the police that O.J. Simpson was at her back door. I said... The way you influence someone that you're no longer seeing in the courtroom is you haunt them. What would be haunting is they're hearing the voice of the person who was murdered naming the person that murdered them. I Mm. said, make make sure that's in the closing argument because everybody's heard everybody's voices for too long. Mm -hmm. And she put that in the closing argument. But can you see that was counterintuitive? Jeez, we wouldn't have thought of that. And we can do that.
0: I love that. Thank you for sharing that story and then really honing on a few points. So in personal development world, we hear a lot, people make decisions emotionally and then rationalize logically afterwards. And what you're pointing to is really talking about the emotional connection to whatever is presented. And I also want to underline this to the viewers who are watching this. This is not actually just about a criminal case per se this is how you're actually making a compelling case for a, a mate that you're attracting, for a, a product or services that your company is building, for the difference that you wanna make for another individual human being. First and foremost, facts are important, don't get me wrong, I have a PhD background, totally get it, and at the same time, how do you actually make that com- em- emotional connection such that it touched their heart? What do you think to <laughs> that?
2: Well, I'll share something with you. Yes, please. So when I spoke in Moscow, along with Daniel Kahneman last October, I introduced my latest thinking on listening. And the title of my talk was Change Everything You Know About Communication. And I think if you practice what I'm about to say, this will change your life forever. So this is, I hope this is counterintuitive Intuitively correct, and you can do it. What I said to the Russian audience, and there's a video clip. If you you go to YouTube, you'll find it there somewhere. And I said to them, now they're hearing me in Russian. I'm speaking in English. They they don't even hear my voice. They're hearing voice of. And I said to them, because it was a business audience, managers and CEOs of organizations and companies. And I said, you're listening to me. And I'm going to do this with you, CK. We're going to do it in real time. CK, you're listening to me. And if I give you a bunch of bullet points, that's what I said to the Russian audience, and you'll write down a few of the bullet points, you might try them. You'll probably forget most of them. And if I'm engaging and I have good stories, you'll be entertained, but you'll probably drop most of them. And But if you're listening to me and I give you a bunch of bullet points, we'll have a nice transactional conversation. Mm -hmm. And then I said, but if instead of that, I focus on what you're listening for from me. Instead of you focusing on you're listening to me and me going rat-tat-tat-tat, if I focus on what you're listening for and I get it right and I deliver on it, you'll give me everything. And I said, so imagine this. I say to the Russian audience, so let me see if I get it right. And then I'm going to do this with you CK. Sure, you're gonna love it. I said to the audience, let me see if I get what you're listening for. Your managers and CEOs. First thing you're listening for is you're listening for something that can get you better measurable results. Because your performance is based on measurable results. And you're listening for something that will get you better measurable results because if that happens, you get a raise. Is that true? They go, duh. Then I said, and you're also listening for something that will get you those results that's less stressful than the way you're doing it now because the way you're doing it now is stressful. You're stressed, your people are stressed, you're eating too much, you're drinking too much. It's a mess. So you're listening for a way to get better results that's less stressful. Is that true too? They go, dah, There was a thousand in the audience. And then I said, here's the most important thing is you're listening for something that is immediately doable by you. Where you don't have to buy a book. I haven't even written a book on this. There's no course because you don't even have the you know space in your head to take a course. And you're listening for something that is immediately doable that will get you those better results. That's less stressful. And if I can deliver that today will have been worth all the time and money you spent to come here. Is that true? And they go, Dah, how did you know that? But can you sense that CK that I was, li- I focused on what they were listening for. Absolutely. So here's the example uh, that if you're viewers and listeners, I'm going to do this on CK. So okay. so CK is asking me some really good, responsible, host-like questions. <laughs> you know, and he's saying, can you answer this? Can you answer that? And I'm answering some of them, and he's tolerating me. <laughs> and I think it's a pretty good conversation. And so, so if I focus on what you're listening to, you give me a question, I answer them. But this is what you're listening for. And tell me if this is different and it's going to be tough because you're an engineer. I got to pull you out of that left brain of yours. I think what you're listening for is it's really important to you that you bring value to your listeners and viewers. Absolutely. It's a calling. uh, And what you're listening for and looking for is something that they can use immediately that will make their lives better, make them more successful maybe something that will get them better measurable results that's less stressful, something they can use immediately. You're also listening for uh, whether you need to protect them from your guests because this is live, and you can have some experts on who have written all kinds of books, but they're real stiffs.
0: Yeah, uh, <laughs> I mean,
2: they're, they're boring, and you're thinking to yourself, we're going live Oh, geez. Uh, I read the person's book and the book is so much better than him or her. (laughs) We got to get through this alive. Geez. I feel like I have to apologize to my viewers and say, look, his book is much better than he was. So you're listening for also people that you want to protect your listeners and viewers from because you don't want to waste their time. Absolutely. So did I get it right? That's what you're listening for?
0: Absolutely. And thank you so much for going a few layers deeper. And for me, one of my deepest commitment also is, yes, we're going to share with them actionable tactics, a way to think about the problems or their life. But really the underneath all of that is such that they can truly tap into their own purpose, such that they can go out and make the kind of difference that they want to make. And so I think for me, what I love to also get that uh, from you is Tap into that, such that they get the energetic transmission, the mental models, the actionable tactic, but really get how they can go out and create the life that they love. So, thank you.
2: You're welcome. Here's a tip that I give people. There's a lot of entrepreneurs. I don't know if you know, know this fact, and maybe your listeners or viewers will will verify this. But a, about a quarter of entrepreneurs have significant psychological issues. They have ADD. They have a little bit of bipolar thing. When they're feeling great, they feel on top of the world. When they're feeling down, they feel like uh, they're doing, they're do, they're being foolish, and maybe they should get a regular job. And about a quarter of entrepreneurs, and so I know this space are prone to anxiety and depression and they became entrepreneurs to treat their anxiety and depression. So when the meaning when you're an entrepreneur and we belong to a community that your listeners of viewers, you know, probably don't know about. And something I find funny, but ironic. And you've heard this there is the host of our community will say, He has a British accent. He'd say, this is a group of heartfelt entrepreneurs, and we're all unhirable. We're all unhirable. And everybody laughs. And it's true. But when you think that you're unhirable and you couldn't work for anyone, and it's great that you're on an adventure now, but it wasn't so great when you were young. Right. When you were young, it's like, why can't you sit still? Why do you have to be different? What does that have to do with your homework? Where is this leading? And right. so you can understand that maybe it's higher than a quarter of entrepreneurs. When they were kids, they were, a lot of the people who will never be entrepreneurs would give them a hard time. Their teachers would say, why do you have to be so rebellious? Why can't you sit still? And so you can understand how God bless all of you if you suffered with that and you made it into your teens that you found a way to find your calling. Here's an exercise I give people. I don't know that it'll apply to uh, the people listening in, but this is a great exercise you can give your friends. I would like you to imagine that your personality is a circle. It's a circle. And inside the circle are the parts of your personality that are trying to prove, show, hide, or please. Prove something, show something, hide something, or please someone. So imagine that's in the circle. And then I say to people, I'd like you now to take all of those outside the circle. What's left? And a lot of people will say, nothing. My whole personality is proving, showing, hiding, or pleasing. And I think a good exercise, maybe you want to do the block, the breathing exercise when you do this. But if you can imagine eliminating the parts of your personality that are trying to prove, show, hide, or please, because when you're doing that, you don't belong to you. You don't belong to you. You belong to someone else who you're trying to prove, show, hide, or please. Some machinery. Yep. And if you can eliminate that and go for a long walk, you may discover a calling that's been calling out to you. Like the siren. (laughs) You may discover something has been reaching out to you, your purpose, but you couldn't hear it because you were so busy proving, showing, hiding, or pleasing. I'm going to recommend a book. Which you've never heard of. Go ahead. And even the person who wrote it doesn't promote it. It's called 101010 10, 10 by Susie Welsh.
0: 101010.
2: Mm-hmm. 10, 10. And she was married to Jack Welsh, who just died. Jack Welsh was the CEO of
1: uh, G. G. Mm-hmm.
2: And what she talks about in 101010 10, 10, is she says that before you make decisions, think about what's going to be the consequence 10 minutes, 10 months, and 10 years from now. So she said when she was a single mom, when she was a divorced mom, she thought, if my company where I get paid needs me to work this weekend, and I was planning a birthday party for my kid, and I tell them the party's off, 10 minutes from now, I'm going to get a temper tantrum. But 10 months from now, I might get a raise. So that's really that's an important thing to think about. But the most important thing is she says it's the 10 years. And so what happens is she says, you take a long walk and think about the decisions you're making and what the effect's going to be 10 years from now. And that's when she shared, that's when I knew I needed to get a divorce. Mm because I realized I can't imagine being in this unhappy marriage 10 years from now. So that might be another little exercise that you can do. Mm. Try to imagine yourself 10 years from now and try to imagine a life that you look forward to every day. Mm. Like, like, you know, I'm a lot older than I look and I'll tell you where I'm at is, And I'm not sure that I thought about this 10 years ago. Uh, But if I'd asked myself the question 10 years ago, where would I like to be 10 years from now? I would say to myself, I don't want to interact with anyone that I don't look forward to seeing. I love that. Yeah. Virtually anyone I interact with, I want to look forward to seeing Because if I have to work around someone who's difficult, someone who's a bully, someone who's a narcissist, uh, I don't want to have to do that. Mm. And it's interesting. If you go to my LinkedIn profile, you'll see that it says theory-why executive coaching. Theory-why executive coaching. And what theory-why executive coaching is I coach people to be theory-why leaders. And again, something that all of you are too young to know about is once upon a time, there was a fellow named Douglas McGregor and he wrote a book called The Human Side of Enterprise. He was the pioneer of organizational development. Some people credit him with being the very first one and The Human Side of Enterprise came out in 1960 and he talked about theory X and theory Y and he said, Theory X is looking at people as if they're lazy, as if you got to hit them with a stick to keep them motivated uh, because they're not going to want to give you a good day's work. Theory Y was, no, people aren't like that. You want to give them a carrot. You want to give them a chance to fully develop their potential and their skills and their amazing talents. And if you can create a Theory Y organization that doesn't have fear, Mm. has opportunity and you make it the most amazing opportunity, those workers are going to reward you with something that's a unicorn right now.
1: Mm.
2: And that unicorn is loyalty. And so theory why coaching, and it's interesting uh, because some years ago, companies would hire me and they would say, we've got a big revenue maker. Uh, or we've got someone who's a genius, but they're really difficult. They rub each other. They rub, They run over people. They're so arrogant. And and we want to keep them because they make us a lot of money or they're a genius. But we don't want a, a, a harassment suit. Collateral we, damage. We don't want collateral damage. So can you work with them? And so I'd work with them and... It was interesting i went through an evolution with them because i would see them and sometimes you know they'd be uh, arrogant because they knew they had the company over a barrel and i actually was reasonably effective with them because imagine meeting someone who's really arrogant and they resent having to do this because they make so much money and whatever
0: or their boss told them to do it they really don't want to do it you don't want to do it Mm
2: -hmm. So so i would meet with them And I would say, I'd say, I don't think this is gonna work. They say, What? I'd say, Yeah, I don't think this is gonna work. Probably better find another coach. And I'd say this even to their boss. Say, what do you mean? I said, I gotta root for the person I'm coaching. I gotta look forward to seeing them. I can't root for this person because they're a jerk. I don't care how productive they are. That's your problem. It's not my problem. And I've given them every chance to be someone I could root for and failed. Everyone. So I I don't think I can do it. Now, sometimes that actually turned out to be really interesting because uh, that would challenge the person. Uh, But what's happened is as time has gone by, I don't even want to deal with these people. Mm -hmm. Because the world is coming towards me. Because what's happening is now companies don't find me. CEOs, entrepreneurs who recognize that their interpersonal, non technical skills are what are holding them back. Mm -hmm. They find me. Yeah. They come to me and they say, I'm pretty talented. After two divorces, after having a kid who was on drugs, I think I'm an a hole.
0: You're You're speaking on your own self?
2: No, they'd be saying to me, these are my clients. These are are the clients who seek me out. Got it. They they, they say, you know, I think they'll tell me, I think I've outsmarted myself. Mm -hmm. You know, I I got lousy marriages and my kids have problems and, you know, and I'm smart, but maybe it's time to fix that. So those people seek me out because they want to be theory why leaders. So quick mm-hmm.
0: question. So quick question there. There is the higher self, right? There is the, I desire to change my life, to be a more compassionate, more empathetic person. So let me go after request Dr. Mark's help. And then there is the, the habitual self, the lower self, the egoic self, the one that's arrogant. And then they took them decades. They have that muscle there. So when you work with the, quote unquote difficult, these type of People who is trying to make a change, but at the same time, the habitual self is pulling them back. How do you ensure that they are living from their higher self?
2: It's interesting. I, I make a distinction between guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. I think shame is an incredible motivator. So guilt, you do something wrong, you make amends. Shame is when you do something or you fail to do something that's out of alignment with who you want to be. Mm-hmm. So shame is a, like I'll give you an example from my personal life. My kids are all grown, and and I was I have three kids, and I was especially close to my middle child because my oldest child was close to mom. And I used to go to every practice that my middle child would go to. And I try to be present because I, I could feel that connection. And and at the time I was this therapist helping families and listening and, and empathic and all that. And I needed to practice what I preach. And so there was one practice that I blew off. I had something to do. And and I said, I rationalized it's just a practice. It's not a game. And my wife called me and she said, uh, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes when you come home. And I said, why? And she said, because our daughter kept looking at you to come into the gymnasium and you never came. She kept staring at the door and you never came and you told her you would. Mm. And my wife, love my wife, and she's really tough. And she says it the way it is. She says, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes when you go see her when you come home. So I do what a lot of dads did. I went to some toy store and bought her a bribe. (laughs) So I come home, and there's my daughter, and she was about seven. And I go into her room, and I looked at her, and I said, I told you I would come to your practice and I didn't come. I didn't tell you the truth. And she's looking at me, a picture a seven-year-old. And you'll see this when you have kids. She's going to like this. She's fighting tears. And I could just see the love and disappointment in her face. Mm-hmm. And I looked at her and I said, look at me. And she's just crying like this. And I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm never going to tell you I promise to do anything. Because I want you to believe that a promise from your dad, you can count on. Mm. You can count on it
1: 150%.
2: So I'm never going to promise you things. What I will say at anything is I'll say, I'll try and have a good track record. But I want you to realize that a promise from your dad you can count on and i'm sorry and then i gave her the little doll she still wouldn't let me off the hook and then the next morning she goes to school and i go into her bedroom and there's the doll in the trash can (laughs) (laughs) so what i'm saying is now some people listening to this will say why'd you have him on Uh, that shame I felt that I disappointed someone who loved me so deeply, so trusted me. And, and, and I'll tell you, if you ever have kids, what you want to do is you want to immerse them when they're young in something called basic trust. There was a psychologist named Eric Erickson and he talked about the stages of psychosocial development. Mm. And at the lowest level, of our psychosocial development is either basic trust or basic mistrust. And look, parents aren't perfect, but when you have basic trust and you walk in the world, it's a different view than when you have basic mistrust. Mm. When you have basic trust, like Jennifer has, you go where you're looking. When you have basic mistrust, like the other entrepreneurs in that room, You look where you're going, meaning you're cautious.
0: Yeah, you worry. The psychological safety is important.
2: And I think it's important that we bathe our kids in basic trust when they're young. Mm. Because uh, there's a famous quote. It's not that famous from Albert Einstein. And I'm messing it up. But he said something like, the most important decision you will ever make in life is whether the world is safe or dangerous.
0: So beautiful. Let me actually pause on that and segue to something um, that you've done for over 25 years as a suicide interventionalist. In moments like that, the stake, I would say, is the highest because you're literally tr- intentional in trying to save someone's life. So if you fail as a psychologist, as a specialist, then they could take their life. And then you've been successful without losing any kind of life. I'm curious to know your point of view. How do you when someone have are going through that dark night of the soul where they lost all hope on all humanity of themselves, the environment, just the point of living, right? All of that gone. They don't have anything to, to stand on. How do you persuade them, coax them in recontextualize such that they have that basic safety, basic, you know, psychological safety to to stay alive?
2: So after Anthony Bourdain killed himself, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: I wrote a blog. You can find it. Why people kill themselves. It's not depression. So it got a lot. It got 500,000 views in a a week because it's a strange title. And what I talked about is there's hundreds of millions of people that are depressed who don't kill themselves. Mm -hmm. Hundreds of millions of people lose jobs, lose marriages. They don't kill themselves. It Mm -hmm. may contribute to it. As a suicide prevention expert, one of the things I've observed that almost all of them have in common when they kill themselves is they have despair. And if you break the word despair into D-E-S-P-A-I-R, it means despair, unpaired, hopeless, without a future, powerless without the power to get yourself out of it. Helpless, worthless, useless, meaningless, purposeless.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And when they all line up, the last one is pointless. Mm-hmm. And you pair with death to take the pain away.
0: Mm-hmm. It's an easier path to...
2: It takes the pain away.
0: Reset. Correct. So
2: what I learned to do, and I was so fortunate, is after I trained in psychiatry, I didn't go work for an institution. Uh, I was going to, but then it was a fellowship and it fell through. So I said, let me just put out uh, my shingle. And uh, and one of my mentors was the pioneer in the field of suicide prevention. So he, he kept referring me suicidal patients. Mm. And so I was fortunate. Because see, if I worked in an institution, I would have to hold my clipboard between them and me. And I'd say, how's your sleep? How's your medicine? Have you had any of those suicidal thoughts? But because I'd have to report it to someone. And but what I started to realize is I started to look into their eyes. And what their eyes were telling me is you're checking boxes, and I'm running out of time. Mm. so i had a choice stop checking the boxes and see what i was seeing in their eyes and dive in so my view of this despair it's like an abscess like a wound a mental wound in the dark night of the soul And if you know anything about wounds, you need to go in, you clean it out, and you don't sew up the wound. If you sew it up, it may get reinfected, may get septic.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What
2: you do is you go in and you clean it out, you leave a drain in, and it heals from the inside out. We call that granulation. So what I learned to do was go into the dark night of the soul And just stay with them there. Didn't throw treatments or advice at them because many of these were multiple tempters. And I would just find a way to listen into their eyes. And I would go into the dark night of the soul. And I'd keep them company there. Mm -hmm. And when they felt by me, Mm -hmm. which is different than feeling understood is nice. It's better than feeling misunderstood.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: But when you feel felt, when you feel that your pain is worth someone getting there right next to you, so you're not alone in it, people start to cry. They cry with relief. And now, if you're just learning how to do this, and I have a new book coming out called Why Cope When You Can Heal, Healthcare Heroes of COVID-19 Can Recover from PTSD, it's mm-hmm. coming out in the next couple of months and we introduce something called surgical empathy. I and, like that. And surgical empathy is literally going into where it hurts most in the dark night of the soul and not rushing them with a technique. So with the multiple suicide attempters that I'd seen, they'd already had all the techniques And again, if you're depressed, you're suicidal, uh, and I'm not currently in practice. I'm retired, uh, although I'm teaching counselors, uh, teaching parents. Uh, I was the co-creator and moderator of a multi-award honored documentary called Stay Alive, intimate conversation about suicide prevention, where I speak to Kevin Hines. He's the fellow who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and survived. And you you can get it for free, stayalivevideo.com. And so the whole idea is that when you can listen in to the dark night of the soul and people feel felt by you, they start to cry. And as they start to cry with relief, they start to calm down. Now for you techies, I'll give you a neuroscientific explanation for that. When people are really stressed or distressed, something in your brain called your pituitary sends a signal to your adrenal glands and your adrenal glands push out cortisol and high cortisol is basically a signal to your physical body let's get ready to deal with this stress and that high cortisol then goes back and triggers a part of your brain called your amygdala and the amygdala is in your emotional brain and what happens is it it sends a signal to your amygdala let's redirect the blood away from thinking to surviving.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: So blood preferentially goes away from your thinking upper human brain to your survival lower brain. Because in our primitive things we needed that lower brain because we had to get the heck out of there. We had to run. We had to flight, flee, fight, or freeze. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is what counteracts high cortisol is high oxytocin oxytocin is the bonding hormone and it's what enables young mothers to bond with their screaming babies screaming babies are stressing them out, they're sleep deprived but there is so much oxytocin going on that they're bonding to that baby and they don't get angry, they get tired and so when you cause someone to feel felt they get a surge of oxytocin the oxytocin counteracts, the cortisol goes down, the amygdala goes down, blood flow goes back up into your upper brain. You can start to think again.
0: So if I'm hearing you right, having whoever is undergoing distress, have them experience love through you, through your generous listening, through your generous space holding that they feel love and felt and heard.
2: Yeah, it was interesting. (laughs) I just wrote a blog, put one up, because I've had 30, 40 years of doing this, Mm
1: -hmm. and
2: and now people are going to hear this and they're going to say that's crazy. You have to. What I'm telling you is out of context. Meaning, I'm just telling you the the breakthrough. So I was seeing someone, and I was feeling his pain, and I said to him, after a long conversation. I said, why haven't you done it? He said, why haven't I done what? I said, killed yourself. He said, what? I said, yeah, why haven't you killed yourself? Because I just felt a little bit of your pain, just the tip of the iceberg. And if I felt all of your pain, I'm not sure I would survive. You're stronger than me. I'm not sure I would have survived because I'm just feeling a little bit of how horrible the things are that you've lived through. And and I was dealing with someone who had been suicidal, but you imagine you're having a conversation with someone like this. And I said, so I don't think I would have survived it. So I'm wondering why you haven't killed yourself. And he looked at me and he said, because I, oh, he, he said, he said, so you don't think I'm weak or I'm crazy? I said, you're stronger than me. Crazy? I don't think so. I'm just getting a little taste of the pain you've been through. It's intolerable. So I don't think you're crazy wanting a way out. And you're not weak, you're stronger than me. And so I'm validating because he's feeling all this shame. I'm weak and I'm crazy. So I looked at him and I said, so why haven't you killed yourself? And then he said, let me get this straight. You don't think I'm weak or I'm crazy? I said, I'm not going to repeat it too many times. (laughs) You're stronger than me, and I don't think you're crazy because the pain was awful. And I said, so why haven't you done it? And then he smiled and he said, because I was waiting to meet you. I said, what? He said, I was waiting to meet someone like you who could tell me I wasn't weak or crazy for wanting to get away from the pain. I said, you're not weak or crazy. And he says, are you sure about that? I said, don't push me. I said, wait a minute. And I took out a prescription pad and I said, I, I'm, I'm going to prescribe something for you. And I write it down I give it to him. I said, read it. And he reads the prescription and it says, you are not weak or crazy. <laughs> I said, read that every time you're feeling suicidal. Okay.
0: <laughs> I love that in a single sentence, you reframe his perspective of himself from weak and crazy to sane and strong. I Absolutely. love that. Yeah, yeah.
2: And then he looked yep. at me and because he's crying through the whole thing. He's just trying to cry because he's being validated. He felt. And then at the end of it, he's smiling because he felt less alone. He felt validated. And then he looked at me and he said, Doc, he said, said Doc, you're crazy. <laughs> and I looked at him. I smiled. I said, no argument there.
0: <laughs> I love that. Thank you for sharing that story. One of my epiphanies from sitting in ceremonies is, man, it's challenging enough to go through life as an individual for someone like you who are healers. Not only you live your own life, but you also take on other people's burden as well, emotional burden and and otherwise. I'm curious to know, how are you able to insulate yourself? Because you're overflowing with love, right? That's who you are. Anyone who spent any more than five minutes actually feel just how much you love human beings. And I want that, but would you say you were born with this incredible capacity for love that you're able to hold other people's suffering or was it cultivated over time? What's your response to my
2: question? Well, there's, um, there's usually a backstory to these things. So I got to tell you the backstory and then you'll say, oh, that explains it. When I was in medical school, I dropped out of medical school twice. And I think I had untreated depression. So the first time I dropped out, uh, and I was highlighting every book because I could read stuff, but I couldn't hold on to it. And I took a leave of absence and my brain, and I worked in blue collar jobs, and my brain came back. I went back after a year. And then within another semester, it came back again. And so I met with the dean of the school who's about fundraising. And you lose money. When someone drops out, you know, tuition doesn't pay for that empty seat. So I met with the dean of the school who's about fundraising. And I don't even remember the meeting. But he may have saved my life because he referred me to the dean of students who cares about people. And I get a call from the dean of students And he said, Mark, I have this letter from the dean of the school. I think you should come in here. We should have a call, a talk. And I was down. And I had a mindset that said, if you can't do anything, you're not worth anything. You don't deserve to be here if you can't do anything. And I was was passing everything, but it was a low point. So I go in there. And he says, here, read the letter. And I read the letter. And the letter's from the dean of the school. And it says, I have met with Mr. Goulston. We talked about a different career. And I'm advising the promotions committee that he be asked to withdraw. What that means is they really couldn't kick me out because I was somehow passing my courses. So they couldn't kick me out. But they wanted to get me out because I was a lost cause. And so I looked at the dean of students and I said, what does this mean? And he said, you've been kicked out. And I'm not a religious person, but maybe I'm spiritual because it was like a gunshot wound when he said that I went. And I felt something wet on my cheekbones and I thought I was bleeding. I just kept looking up like this. And it was tears. And I'll tell you, I think it was a miracle because if he had said, if I can help you, give me a call. I don't think I would have called him. I think I would have gone back to my apartment and I'm not sure if I'd still be here. But he didn't say that. So imagine you're there and you feel useless and worthless because you can't do anything. And what he said instead was, Mark, you didn't screw up because you're passing everything miraculously, but you are screwed up. But if you got unscrewed up, I think this school would be glad they gave you a second chance. And I'm thinking, what? I mean, Who's he talking to? Because I'm useless, worthless. And then he said, imagine hearing this. He said, and even if you don't get unscrewed up, even if you don't become a doctor, even if you don't do anything the rest of your life, I'd be proud to know you because you have a streak of goodness in you that we don't grade in medical school. And you have no idea how much the world needs that goodness. And you're not going to know it till you're 35, but you have to make it till you're 35. Mm. So I am just crying. He is pummeling me with compassion. Mm. And then he says, and I couldn't even look at him. I'm having trouble looking at you. And he, and he points at me, he says, look at me. And he points at me and he says, you deserve to be on this planet mm. and you're going to let me help you. And so he arranged an appeal and I had to make my case and I guess they saw something in me. These doctors saw something in me, mm. but it flipped the switch. Because there I was, useless and worthless. But he reached in and didn't let go. Plus, he stood up for me. Mm. He stood up against the school for me. Mm. He was a PhD, and this promotions committee were all medical doctors. He took them all on to say, I think we should give this guy another chance. Mm. So it flipped a switch in me, but essentially... Maybe that connects the dots, CK, because that's what I've basically done as a suicide specialist As I go in, I see some value in them, and I say, you're not going anywhere.
0: Thank you for sharing that powerful story. That Dean did the same thing you did for the the person who wanted to die, who thinks himself Mm -hmm. worthless, and in a single conversation, helped you reframe your whole life. He saw a streak of goodness in you. And then, hence, why you're doing what you do, and then you do it so well. And I don't see you stopping. I, I, you probably have another twenty books in you. I, I I would probably assert.
2: Yeah, and and I will tell your listeners. Here's one of the difficulties I have, because I do these shows, Mm -hmm. and a listener or viewer will say, "You could reach my son or daughter," and I'm, not, and I'm retired, and also. And what I tell people, so I do, I co-present to EO and we're hoping to do it to YPO, a friend of mine's 14-year-old son killed himself two years ago Mm -hmm. named Jason Reed. And if you look up Jason Reed Goldcast, he did a presentation to 15 male entrepreneurs about how he blew it with his 14-year-old son Mm -hmm. who killed himself. So we've been doing presentations where he tells the story and I talk about, here's something you can try with your kid. And But it's still difficult for me because I say, look, I might be able to reach your kid empathically. I don't know. I'm getting pretty old. Uh, But if I reach them, how can I reach them? And then I can't continue to see them.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. At this stage of my life, I can't continue to see them. I'm retired status. And so I'll help you as a parent. I'll help you. These are some of the things you might say. But but it's painful, it's painful because it's you know it's tough to walk away and say I might have been able to help that person.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you
2: know, but you can only do what you can do, and I'd much rather. So if people are listening in and they find any of what we're talking about relevant when there's been suicides in your high schools, or your colleges, I'd be happy to do a Zoom call. What I've discovered about preventing suicide and the how to get through to people. You know, you can reach out to me and as time permits, that's the other problem is I have so many things I'm working on. I don't know that I have even time to breathe, but but saving lives is, you know, you talk about purpose.
0: Yeah, how would you articulate yours?
2: There's a story that I share. And it's a story about Abraham Lincoln. And Abraham Lincoln was going from one town to another town. And he passed a horse that was stuck in a ditch. And he drove by about a half a mile, and then he drove all the way back to the horse. And the people in his group, when they got back there, they said, why'd you do that? And Abraham Lincoln said, I couldn't get the pain of the horse out of my head. Mm. So that's what happens to me, is I can't get the the pain of the world out of my head. Mm. And I believe I was born to try to lessen it. And the pain is fear, hurt, anger.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And But what I wanna do is, and, and, and if people want to help with this, I would love to start building a platform. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think I'm gonna be doing something. And if you haven't heard of this, I hope you'll check it out, CK. There's something called tether.men. Mm-hmm. And it's a group, it's a peer-to-peer support group for men who are dealing with a lot of these things. And I'm getting to know the co-founders real well. And what happened is they, they went on a retreat, a men's retreat, and they personally had breakthroughs, breakthroughs that alleviated some really dark thoughts. So they're doing their best to bring it online in a digital community to create a community of peer-to-peer support for men. Now, women might say, what about us? Women can use their language. Women are able to use their words and feel, and if you don't try and problem solve them, if you're a guy, which most guys do, women are expressing themselves because they want to feel felt. And they want to feel felt because they want to feel oxytocin. Because if they feel oxytocin, their cortisol is going to go down. But if when they share with you their feelings that they just want to have listened to, And you give them advice or solutions they don't want. You're going to increase their cortisol Mm -hmm. because what they're really wanting is the oxytocin. They want to feel felt because when their oxytocin goes up, unfortunately, doing that scares the heck out of most men. But when their oxytocin goes up without you making it worse by giving them advice they don't want, their cortisol goes down, they calm down, they cry, they feel better.
0: Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think for anyone listening, anyone have ever been in a relationship before, especially the men, uh, listen to this very poignant advice. It would do you and your relationship really good. I want to switch topic a little bit about amplifying your purpose, multiplying the impact that you could make. I'm curious to know your opinion about the use of psychedelics, ketamine, ayahuasca, psilocybin as a way to allow people to penetrate through the perception, through the ego, right? The personalities to the core of who they are, just a little bit more direct. Curious to know your thoughts on that.
2: It's interesting. I do a visualization with people mm-hmm. go to my wake up call podcast. Uh, I've done it with a number of my guests, but if you look up Colonel Chris Kalenda, K O L E N D I did on the podcast with him. It's audio. And what I do, and I've done this with a number of people, and maybe we'll do this on a, another interview with you mm-hmm. is I'll have people go back to an awful time in their life. And I'll have them go back as an adult and meet that person who was traumatized. And then we facilitate a conversation where that person who was traumatized feels felt and safe by you, this older adult. And you don't tell that younger part of you that you're them. What you do is you dive into something where they feel felt by you. They start to express their fear, their horror, their terror. And then what happens is you reveal to them because they're going to feel better, that younger part of you. And they're going to think, so you're going to leave, aren't you? And that's when you tell them, I'm never leaving you because I'm you. And you made it through this and you're going to have a good life. It's going to be some bumps in the road. And then at the end of it, I have in the visualization, the adult you hug that younger you and imagine your DNA fusing together. Mm. I share that because I think what happens with psychedelics and ayahuasca and whatnot, it's a similar kind of thing where those allow you to let go of control. Mm hmm. Most of the people who are drawn to psychedelics and ayahuasca tend to be control freaks and they do do not know how to let go of control.
0: That's pretty good. And what
2: happens is when you take the drugs, you're no longer under control. You've lost it, but that's why you need someone, uh, a facilitator or a shaman to reassure you because you'll feel like, I I think I'm going crazy. This is a nightmare. I don't think I'm ever going to come back. And because they're so experienced, And basically what's happening is it's not getting past your ego. It's that your brain and mind are misaligned.
0: Say more about that.
2: Think of it this way. Uh, Let's say we start out in life, Mm -hmm. basic trust, and we start out and we're a perfect Rubik's cube. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Just perfect. Every side is perfect. But then because of life, and being uh, abused, being criticized, being ignored, that rubric's cube starts to twist and twist. And it's not so clean anymore. And it keeps getting twisted and twisted. But then what happens, and this is especially true for entrepreneurs, is you can't get it back to that special shape, but the but you discover something called an adrenaline rush. So when you're under stress, your cortisol not only goes up, your adrenaline goes up, fight or flight. And adrenaline makes you feel superhuman, Mm -hmm. makes you feel powerful. But then what happens, and and in my book, Why Cope When You Can Heal, We talk about the adrenaline rush being a case of fool's bold, not fool's gold, fool's bold, meaning that when you're under the influence of an adrenaline rush, you feel super powerful. You feel like you can do anything. You can stay up four days in a row in a horrendous hospital, seeing death all around you, and you don't know how you're doing it because you're running on adrenaline. But then when the danger goes away, and the thing that's spurring the adrenaline rush goes away and the adrenaline goes away, the crash causes you to start to fall apart. So a lot of entrepreneurs are always pedal to the metal because they want to keep the adrenaline high.
0: They're addicted to that high, yeah.
2: And another reason they're addicted to the adrenaline high is because adrenaline is similar to Adderall. High adrenaline equals equal, is similar to Adderall. And if you have ADD, when you're on an adrenaline rush, you can stay really focused. That's why a lot of extreme athletes had ADD as children. But boy, when they developed a a skill as an extreme sport, they just focused. But what happens is when the adrenaline rush goes away, your mind starts to unravel.
0: There's actually a documentary called The Weight of Gold by Michael Phelps. It talks about the suicidal tendencies of these Olympians. So exactly to your point.
2: It's interesting you bring that up. If you're listening to this, you can catch weight of gold on hbo max you can see a panel with michael phelps and the director brett rapkin and they talk about making the movie and michael phelps and the other athletes said they had add when they were kids so imagine if they had add they're just frustrating everyone and then they suddenly develop a superpower and i and if you go to my wake-up call i interviewed brett rapkin the director hmm so you go to my wake-up call, you'll see that interview. And not to leave it alone, I may be part of a series called The Mediator with a fellow named Sean Collinson. And we did an episode called All That Glitters is in Gold. It's a video. And so I talk about what's that like when you have the appeal of the gold medal, And it turns out you go from this frustrated and frustrating child that won't sit still to suddenly you have this superpower. And not only do you have the superpower, oh, your coaches love it because you're going to make them famous. And sometimes your parents love it because you're going to make them famous. And then you give up everything in life to become this amazing athlete. And sometimes you don't even get the gold medal, but even Michael Phelps, he got many gold medals. But then what happens is it goes away. The adrenaline rush goes away. You realize I sacrificed my entire life to be this superhuman athlete. My coaches are not that interested in me because they're interested in the younger athletes. So what they deal with is I sacrificed everything to become this superhuman and amateur athletes make almost no money. You think they're running in money? They make, almost nothing. But everyone thinks it's so glorious to go to the Olympics. And then I think what they're dealing with, which wasn't didn't happen in the the film, but I've seen this with Olympic athletes, I have seen this with uh, celebrities, I've seen this with rock stars. One of the most difficult things they have to deal with, which can lead to being suicidal. That's what they talk about in the film is they feel foolish for having sacrificed everything. And they feel used by the coaches. They feel used by the Olympic Committee. And so when you have a combination of, look what I've sacrificed. And now the glory day is over. I didn't even make money from it. And all these people that I thought loved me were actually using me because it made them a star. Can you see how that can lead to pretty self-destructive thoughts? So that might be an interesting evening. If you can catch the weight of gold, listen to the Brett Rapkin interview on my wake-up call and then catch our video. I think it's called all That glitters is in gold.
0: Thank you for that. I want to bring it to the listeners here. Now, People who are listening, you may not be an Olympian or professional athlete or not even an entrepreneur, but these are human journeys that we all go through, especially during a time like COVID as an example. This is a hard reset for perhaps the fundamental identity that you have around yourself, around your business, about who you are as a parent, about who you are as an entrepreneur, whatever that may be. So I'm curious to know from your perspective, Mark. What could they do as a way to reestablish, because their identity is being wiped out, similar to the Olympians per se. They're going through this dark night of the soul, the trough of disillusionment, whatever name, the crises, whatever name you give it. What actionable tactics could they take on to reinvent their identity such that they come out even stronger? So this is a blessing, not a curse.
2: There's a, there's an acronym, because I come up with these little abbreviations for people to remember. And it's, it's called MAP, M-A-P-R. I I wish I, I could probably come up with another one. But what it stands for is every day, if you can do a meaningful activity that serves a purpose, it will give you a reason to get out of bed. If you can come up with a meaningful activity that serves a purpose it will give you a reason to get out of bed it'll give you a reason to live so here's an example one of the things i used to do also i have a TEDx talk called what made you smile today and you can check it out and i think it's it's i think it's a pretty good talk but given the covid thing because i started a mission called what made you smile today And the TEDx talk basically talks about, and this was the mission, and I I may return to it, is the TEDx talk is, uh, I speak about a friend of mine who had a drug addict daughter. And he didn't want to call her because she was always manipulating, making excuses, but he felt, I'm making her worse. But I hate to speak to her because she's always manipulating me. So instead, he started texting her every day and he said, uh, hey, honey, it's dad, what made you smile today? And at first she started talking about, oh, I thought you'd give me money. And he said, you no, we've done the money thing, no money. And he just kept doing it every day, 5 p.m. And after about six weeks, he gets a text back from her. And she says, okay, dad, if you must know what made me smile today was knowing that you would text me. That's right. He started to cry. And that turned a corner. He started to cry because he realized we started to enjoy each other and it wasn't about being manipulated.
1: Mm.
2: And a couple months later she was off drugs because she had felt like she was a burden. And the point is, as long as she was a liar, she was a burden.
1: Mm.
2: And so she turned that around. And what I did after hearing that, uh, and it's a little challenging with people wearing masks, but w- what I did and let me see if I have any here. Uh yeah, I have a thousand of these wristbands and it says hashtag WMYST, which stands for What Made You Smile Today, hashtag WMYST. And if you go to Instagram, we have a hashtag WMYST. And what I started doing is whenever I would see someone who served me, you know, a waiter, a waitress, TSA, I'd go up to them, I'd see their name tag and I'd say, uh, hey, Joan, thank you. So I thank you. I, I thank them for serving me. Hey, Joan, thank you. My name's Mark. I have a question for you. And they look like this. I said, no, you're not in trouble. Joan, what made you smile today? They pause, they think, and then they look, and they have a huge smile. My kids, my dog, it's a new day, the sun. And, and then i say, you have a great smile. And then I would give them two wristbands. Mm. And I'd say, you have a great smile. Here is one to remember to use it every day. Mm. And give the other one to someone else. Pay it it. Mm. I love that. And And actually, if you look up the Nowhere Men, Nowhere Men were two men in a startup in Manhattan. And if you look up Nowhere Men, the science of smiling for a week. They took the, what made you smile today challenge. And it's a great segment and they video it and they go around the shopkeepers and they were really nervous. They talked about, geez, yeah, I'm nervous. I'm here in New York, but it seems to whatever. And they did it for a week. And if you watch it changed their life mm-hmm. and they do shopkeepers and a shopkeeper comes out and starts dancing with them. What may, and, and there's one, there's this really just cute, short, Hispanic fellow who's shy. And they say, what made you smile today? And he smiles like you made me smile today. Mm. And so the point is that was going to be, and I may, we may revive it. That was going to be a mission. As I said, it's a little challenging because people are wearing masks, but it's an example of what to do. Um, Here's something else you can do, but again, you might feel uncomfortable with it. I always carry a box of snacks with me, little snacks, peanuts. And I go over to homeless people. And sometimes you're afraid to give homeless people money because you're afraid they're going to use it on drugs or alcohol. And I'll go up to them. And I try not to scare them. And I'll say, uh, hey there, my name's Mark. What's your name? They do have names, homeless people. They talk, they have names. And they'll look. Now I won't say what made you smile today because that would just be that would be insensitive.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But I'll give them a snack. Now, some of them may not take it. It's better than giving them money and worrying are they just going to buy alcohol or drugs? I'd say, Joe, it's good to meet you. Here's a little snack. I hope it helps. You take care of yourself and see what happens when you do this. And people light up and you made someone else happier for a moment and you didn't get anything from it in your bank account, it actually helps you to feel worthwhile. Mm -hmm. It helps you to feel, I brought a little sunshine into the world. And I'll tell you, it takes very little. One of the other things I think I talk about in the TEDx talk is I get emails from all around the world. And I'm a little bit disorganized. So sometimes I, you know, I just get too many. So, but I got one from a young man named Arul in India. And he asked me something and you know, I had a moment. So I gave him a little advice. And and we're not talking. We're just typing. And I said, Arul, I have a question for you. He got nervous. I said, Arul, what made you smile today? And he wrote back, he said, no one as famous as you has ever typed my name. Mm. And so every day I go to the computer and I type what you typed. I type your name and I type, I touch your name and I touch my name. Mm. I'll tell you, it really got to me. And I thought, wow, that was so little. That could have changed our rules life.
0: Thank you. thank you very much so mark i want to be super respectful of your time uh, time has come to an end but I, I could talk to you for hours i want to acknowledge you in a few words i acknowledge you for really just showing up for doing the work for following your purpose for sharing so generously what it takes to live a purposeful life You shared you know with us actionable tactics of doing one thing that serves your purpose every day, doing it consistently, and doing it in, in, the, in the simplest way possible, as if you're sharing your candlelight with other human beings. And for anyone that's listening, please, I'll share the links with you. So then definitely, I'm in the middle of reading your book, listening right now. And I wanted to just give you a little bit of testimonial. So Mark, What's remarkable about Mark's work is not just, hey, here's some clinical data, some theories behind it. In everything that he shared, he gives you mental models, actionable tactics, such that you can go out and cultivate your own empathy, your own compassion, your own ability to communicate better with people that you care about in your life. So thank you so much for demonstrating that, embodying that you are an inspiration. Thank you, Mark.
2: Look, you brought it out of me. We, we did it together, CK. So thank you. And thank you to your listeners. And, and I hope you'll check out my wake up call and, and you go to my site, com, uh, where uh, you'll find if you like any of what we talked about, you'll find more.